0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Edit Mojkic lives in Melbourne now, but she grew up, got married and had kids in a country that no longer exists. This was the nation of Yugoslavia that sat on the map between Italy and Greece. Yugoslavia had been put together after the Second World War from a bunch of smaller nations with more or less the same language, but different religions. Edit lived in the city of Sarajevo. And she remembers it as a peaceful city. But the unity was paper thin. Beautiful and tragic Sarajevo lay at the nexus of some terrible fault lines in European history. Fault lines between Serbs and Croats, between the Orthodox and Catholic churches, between Christianity and Islam, and between the old Habsburg Empire and the Empire of the Ottoman Turks. And this was where the shots were fired that started the First World War. In the 1980s, Yugoslavia started to splinter and a flashpoint was the state of Bosnia. Bosnia was mixed. It had no clear ethnic identity and too much bad blood in its history. In 1992, editor and her husband, Goran were living in Bosnia's capital, Sarajevo, with their two small kids when the city came under siege. And editor realised she had to get out to save the lives of her children even if that meant leaving the husband she adored behind. Editor's memoir is called Between, Before and After. Hello, Editor. Welcome.
0: Hi, Richard. Thank you for inviting me.
1: You grew up in a relatively stable post-war Yugoslavia, ruled by Marshal Tito, who seemed to be holding the country together. What do you remember of your life in Sarajevo before the war came, what it was like on the streets, the parks, to be a citizen of that city?
0: Oh, the life was just as it is everywhere. My life then in Sarajevo was the same as my life in Melbourne is now. So you have a job, you have family, you have young kids, you go to work, you earn money, you pay your bills, you know, you you cook, you feed your children, you clean. Sarajevo looked like the most peaceful place in the world. It was very safe to walk on the streets even after midnight for a young female, which I did before I got married. You felt comfortable, you felt like you had everything and nothing bad could ever happen to you. And we thought it was going to be like that forever.
1: Sarajevo had that ethnic mix of Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Muslims as well. Even though Muslim isn't really an ethnicity, it was sort of understood to be in Yugoslavia at the time. But were you conscious of this growing up, your friends' different ethnicities?
0: No, no, not at all. I mean, I kind of could have guessed like the names and the surnames are a little different depending on whether you're a Serb, Croat, or a Muslim, which you said correctly is not ethnicity, but in former Yugoslavia it was used like that. You could guess who, the, who they were, but I never thought about it. Like, obviously, um, I married someone who wasn't of my ethnicity, so my parents were Croats, that's like Catholics, and my husband has. Uh, mother who is a Serbian Orthodox and his father was Bosnian Muslim so if I had thought about who is who I would never have married Goran to me like ethnicity or religion that wasn't even like practiced much didn't mean anything at all and I thought everyone was like that like that absolutely didn't mean anything to me or to my parents or to Goran's parents who you know what our ethnic background was Nothing at all. I would say that lots of marriages were still, you know, in in a single ethnicity, but lots weren't. So it was pretty much dependent on who you meet in your life and how you fall in love.
1: And how did you meet Goran, your husband?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I met him at uni and I can honestly remember now watching him from a distance. He was very tall, blonde, slim, and looked quite unusual for like an engineering degree. Was, I can.
1: was he handsome, is that what you mean?
0: <laughs> he was handsome. He still is handsome, although he's many years older, yeah. Yeah, so I pretty much sort of fell in love at a first sight and I had a boyfriend at the time and I kind of had to wait for that relationship to end, which seemed not easy and I don't want to go into the details, but it <laughs> did end. It did um, end and, and Goran and I started and, yeah, three years later we got married
1: what was your wedding day like?
0: Oh, very simple, like if I had a choice I would probably decide not to marry but just to live with my partner. That was not an option in Sarajevo at that time, probably not even now. Um, You kind of never stayed, never lived with a boyfriend or a girlfriend if you weren't married, so we just had to fulfil that formality and we just gathered together at my mom and dad's place and everybody was a bit surprised, like my parents and grandparents, about why is it so little? Like, why can't we make a bigger <laughs> wedding or something? Right. But we just really didn't. <laughs> and honestly, didn't really have the money. We just finished uni, both of us, and couldn't really afford. I didn't have anything new, like any new clothes. I just had my pretty much ordinary clothes on me, just sort of, you know, washed, dried, clean, polished, here, just washed in my own bathroom and dried makeup <laughs> symbolic, and that's it. You just registered and we moved into our apartment that we were renting
1: so then you had two children, two little kids, Dario, yes. your son, and Eleanor. What were they like as little kids?
0: Well, Dario was um my first child, and I didn't know what to expect to have a child, and I didn't realize that he was what we call a perfect baby, what his sister often Mentions as your perfect son. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, but Goran traveled a lot for work. He worked for um, the organization who did software for Olympic Games. So in 1984, there were Olympic Games, Winter Olympic Games in Sarajevo. And Goran worked with that team, and then they sold that software to Calgary and some other places in Europe, which they had like Goodwill Games and so on. So he traveled a lot, and I was. With Dario by myself, no one could help me and I just thought it was too impossible to have a second child and then somehow I made that decision and we had Elena and then I learned what little children are like. Yeah.
1: <laughs> she cried a bit more.
0: She cried a lot more, mm. yes, yes.
1: So you were an engineer at the time and still are an engineer and you both applied to migrate to Australia as skilled migrants. That's right. That was before the war came to Sarajevo. Were you seriously intent on going or were you just thinking that might be an option for you?
0: Well... You don't know how serious you're doing anything, are you, if you have an option of not going ahead with that plan. So, uh, A, we didn't know whether we would be accepted. And and also, once you are accepted, you have two years to decide whether you want to migrate or not. So that summer, 1991, we were in Croatia, um, and that's when the war in Croatia already started. And it was quite uncomfortable to be there in, in the streets of a small town where everybody was cursing the other side. And we just thought when we came back home in September, we thought, let's do this and see what happens. I think that we were both hoping not to go, maybe Grandmore more than I did. But luckily, very, very luckily, that we decided to do that because by the time the war started, and I called the Australian Embassy in Belgrade, which was the capital of Yugoslavia, and I asked about our case, they said that it was all done, only the medicals were missing. So that was pretty lucky.
1: How did you notice things changing in Sarajevo as these tensions broke out?
0: Well, I think we were in a terrible denial to be honest. Like there were I'm sure that there were more signs than we than I remember. The first thing that I remember happened was the night after the referendum for Bosnian independence that was 29th of February 1992, Sunday when the referendum was on and my husband worked on the votes um collection and and counting as a as an IT person with his company that he worked for then so i was at home with my kids it was a sunny day and we just went for a walk with a friend and then i saw a car with young men and the the windows were down and the the guns the big guns artillery that they had in their hands you could see them through the windows and I asked her like what is this like what is going on she said oh don't worry don't worry it's going to be fine it's just like you know political tension so that's 29th of February 1st of March morning early morning I get a call from a friend at very early hours saying don't go to work I know Goran's not at home don't go to work and I said what why what happened she said there were barricades raised in the city overnight, and I said, "Why? What? What's happening? She said, I don't know. Just, just stay at home. Hopefully, Goran will be back soon." And of course, like a couple of hours spent um, in in the house, but completely like worried about what's going on. Where is Goran? When is he going to come? What barricades? What do they want? What's going to happen next? And he got home, and they saw someone firing in the street, out of nothing, and we were really worried. And for like a few days, we didn't go to work. But then the barricades were removed and it seemed like it was calming down and everything was going OK. So I think that was a great sign that things aren't OK. But we just denied what we saw with our own eyes. It just We just thought it's impossible. It cannot happen. It's like Europe. London was or still is two hours flight from Sarajevo. How could a war be there? But we know what happened.
1: I think if that happened in Australia, I, I think I'd be you know, well, first of all, horrified, but also heartbroken. Were you feeling like that?
0: You know, I mean, when when the protests happened about the vaccination and, and all the COVID-related things. I think that probably people who went through Bosnian war were much more scared than people who didn't like Australians who were born here and don't have knowledge of how things can easily turn ugly. You don't think it's going to happen. You just don't. It's just in- inimaginable to have a war in your own country. So you see the signs, but you say, no, it's impossible. It's not going to happen.
1: How did life in the city change after the Bosnian Serb army put Sarajevo under siege?
0: Yeah, well, huge change immediately. So... Sarajevo is in a valley and surrounded by mountains, so it's just so easy. And maybe there are like three, there still are three roads out of the city, so it's reasonably easy to block that, to go on the mountains and just shoot on the city. And that started immediately. So the 1st of March, when we had the first barricade, everything settled down for a while. And then on 5th of March, Sarajevans had a big peace rally in the town, in the centre of town, just, you know, saying we don't want to be um divided, we we want to say united and then they started shooting from a nearby hotel and everything ended, you know, in blood. And the following day or that day the war officially started. Chaos immediately, like starting from all the windows on the shops and supermarkets were broken and people started stealing things to the point that you couldn't go to the supermarket immediately you couldn't go to buy things so if you didn't have anything in a house that you wanted to sort of have for a few days or a few weeks you couldn't actually make up for that then the shelling from the hills started immediately so we lived in an apartment on the fourth floor that was kind of half one side was turned toward the hills where the shooting was coming from and the other part was towards the side that was kind of Bosnian side, no shooting from that side. So we moved uh, my son's single, single mattress into a narrow corridor between the two sides where I slept with the two of them on a single mattress on the floor between two walls. That's all space that I had and my husband slept on the side, on the safe side, if I can call it like that, under the dining table. So everything changed immediately. I didn't go to work, of course, as soon as it started, Goran had to. But I trembled while he was away, not knowing whether he would come back, because it was shooting constantly. In the beginning, it seemed a bit further away, because we lived in like a newer suburbs of Sarajevo, And they started shooting the old town first and it looked, you know, you could hear it really well, but you know it's not close by. But within a week or so, it started coming everywhere and it's just like constant noise that even now makes me very uncomfortable to listen to fireworks. It's just, you know, the same sort of sound of things exploding.
1: While you were living through the siege, were friends leaving the, the city while you stayed?
0: Well, at the beginning, people left in panic, and 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 good for them because they managed to get on flights and buses and trains. While my husband and I thought this is not going to continue. It can't be a war. It's not going to be a war. Until one night, I realized that I don't want to stay there. I um, it was like. Evening, I was trying to put Elena to sleep and I had her in my arms and we walked in the bedroom, the blinds down and the lights turned off. Radio was on so that it could sort of mask the sound of grenades and bullets hissing past the the building. And I was, you know, trying to put her to sleep, half listening to the radio and then a mother started crying, screaming that her child was injured and the ambulance couldn't come because of the barricades, and I realized then that I didn't want to be that mother. I just put Elena to sleep and went and talked to Goran and said, I have to leave. I have to leave. I just can't stay here anymore. Terrifying decision to leave your husband behind, but also to take two children into unknown. We. um like the the situation was weird that we had all our savings at my parents' place because the looting before the war was quite, quite significant and we thought because we worked, we weren't at our apartment, we left that money with my parents. But when the war started, they were in the occupied part of Sarajevo, Gorbavica, and we just couldn't get there. And as soon as the war started, we moved our car from just in front of the building, like an open car park, into a garage of my in-laws. Again, I couldn't get there to get the car. So when this option became available to leave with a convoy of private cars, I said to Goran, I'm going to go. And he said, how? You have no car. You have no money. How are you going to do that? Luckily, life has somehow arranged things for me or for us.
1: Why couldn't Goran go with you?
0: It's the same situation, I think, in every war. It's the same situation in Ukraine now. Men just can't leave. They have to stay and, stay and fight and, and, or work. No men were allowed unless they had paperwork that they were sick.
1: So you thought you'd, you and your children would join this convoy of cars and vehicles getting out of Sarajevo and going into Croatia. How did you get hold of a car?
0: I don't know, just just pure luck, I think. Um, so when when I heard about this convoy, it happened that a friend called from a small town in Croatia. She left maybe a week or two weeks before, and we were quite close. She called to see how we were going. And I said to her that I had an invite from a different friend from Split to come and spend a few weeks or a few months with them until the political situation gets better. But I said, there's this convoy with private cars, I can't get to my car, I don't know whether I'll ever have a chance to leave this town. And she said, oh, I left my car with my my brother, and you'd do me a favor if you bring the car to Croatia so I can sell it and have some money for living." And that's what happened. I phoned her brother and he said, of course, yes, I'll, I'll give you the car and I'll give you some petrol. He was already in the army. He had the way of finding petrol. I'll give you some petrol under one condition and I just sort of, you know, stopped breathing at that moment. What's the condition? And he said, you have to bring my wife with you because she can't drive. And I said, oh, of course, yeah, you know, even better if I have another adult with me, not just two children. So, you know, when a couple of days later they they said the convoy would be leaving that day in a couple of hours, I phoned them and they came and he gave me the petrol, but that was two one-litre bottles of Coke. And I just sort of, you know, froze and said, how far will this get me on? He said, oh, don't worry, there's a bit of petrol in the car. So no one kept the petrol in the car because people were just like taking it out. So oh. he had the minimum amount of petrol in the car, I guess, only so that you can drive somewhere in a hurry.
1: How was it for you to say goodbye to your husband, Goran?
0: Oh, heartbreaking. I hope I won't, I hope I won't cry now because I usually do when I remember that. it's. There are no words to describe it because it's, it's a moment when you have no idea what could happen next to us or to him, whether we would ever... See each other again, so you can't promise anything. There's nothing to talk about, you know. What do you What do you say? I'm gonna do this and that. No, you don't say anything. We just like looked into each other's into each other's eyes and just gave a quick kiss to each other. And he helped the kids to go into the car, and I just drove off because there's nothing to say. It's I I really was scared that I would never see him again. Not because. We couldn't be united because I was just really scared that something would happen to him.
1: Or to you, perhaps, in the convoy. Or to us
0: as well, yes.
1: How big was this convoy of vehicles getting out of Sarajevo?
0: It was very big. Um, Apparently five to 7,000 people. Um, They say there was like 1,000 cars, 20 buses and 10 minivans. Um, So, as I said before, mothers with children and elderly and potentially a few sick men.
1: And are you trying the whole time not to let your children know how frightened and upset you are?
0: Yeah, well, I tried. <laughs> I don't know if I succeeded, to be honest. And and um, it's it's not easy to play that everything's fine when absolutely everything around you tells you that it isn't. And I tried to play this like, this is this is okay, you know, we are here, not by choice, but it's all fine, uh, we, it's, we, we're going to be fine. But never actually said anything, not even to Dario, who was old enough to understand. I just didn't have anything to tell him. What could I tell him? Don't worry, your dad will be here soon. When? It's just, yeah, I just never started conversations like that with him. We talked about school, we talked about food, safe topics, but not about what would happen next. He was a smart boy and he still is a smart boy. He could read me better than I thought, but never asked questions because I think he sort of felt, he sensed that I didn't want to talk about it.
1: So the convoy, you say, chugged forward in this really stop, start sort of way, and then you were moved to a side road. What happened then? Yeah.
0: Well, the, the very start was really kind of weird, but you don't know what to expect, you know. In, you're in the first time in a convoy leaving a war situation. You don't know whether it should be moving faster or not. But it was really irritating because that Škoda, the car that the friend gave me, sort of started boiling from the engine and I was scared that I would not be able to continue. But we sorted out that problem and, you know, stop, start, stop, start, maybe two, three k's from where we started. We sort of forked off to like a side road and I thought, oh, it must have been like a Serbian checkpoint. Okay, fine, let's just go through that. But then we stayed there much longer than I thought would be enough to for them to walk past and see whether there were any men who shouldn't be on the convoy. A few hours later, I can't remember exactly how many, four, five, six, we learned that we were kept by Serbian para-army um, and soon after the night came and we stayed the night there, not knowing whether... You know, what's going to happen that what, night?
1: What did those soldiers look like when they came to your car?
0: Oh, very scary. Very scary. Like, they had the on their faces. They had huge machine guns in their hands. Walking kind of, you know, um, I don't know how to call that, like, proudly, like, they owned the situation, which they did, of course. Just scary. Like, you don't, you know, it was only six weeks into the war, but the story is about rapes, murders, whatever, were everywhere. Like if, you know, if you didn't know anyone who had been through such a story, you heard stories. And I was really scared, like two young kids, two women in a car, when they offered um, two mothers to go into the house, to stay the night, I was really hesitant because I just didn't know what's worse. Like, is it worse to go into a room or is it worse to stay in the car? Like, who's going to be raped, killed, whatever could happen? In the end, I, I suggested to my, my friend Slavica that we go into the house because I just couldn't... Re- couldn't imagine the four of us sleeping in the car. It was actually quite cold, May, but the nights are still still cold um, in Sarajevo. That's just like in um, or middle of spring. So we went in, yeah.
1: Do you remember of that night you spent with your kids in that room?
0: Uh, terrifying, terrifying. First of all, my hesitation to move towards the house got us in a situation that, Pretty much everyone was already there. So we walked into a room that was packed, like 20 to 30 mothers and everybody in every little space available on the single bed and, and, and on the floor. And I somehow saw that one corner had a bit of space and I hurried there with my two children. I think that Slavica, my friend, she was somewhere else in, in a different place. And I just somehow tried to make us comfortable there. Um, I remember not having any milk or anything for Elena, so I just went and got some cold water from the bathroom for her and chained her and she screamed under the cold water and, and I somehow managed to warm her with my body. I think she slept on, you know, in my on my chest on under my sort of chin on my neck. And Dario just made space on on my legs and whatever space he can find on, on the floor next to me. And I just sort of sat against the wall trying to somehow protect them. But not really that I could do much if anything bad was going to happen. But I had really, you know, terrible scenes going through my head and expecting something bad to start every minute. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: So you were explaining, Editor, before how the convoy was diverted to a side road. You sat in the car with your children for hours and hours until some Serbian paramilitary soldiers ordered you all into a house. What happened in the middle of the night? How was your sleep interrupted on that terrifying night with your children?
0: So I I guess like having my daughter on my chest and like my head against her, beautifully fresh smell of a baby somehow put me to sleep until I heard a really loud noise and it was the door that sort of got open and hit the wall behind and the man walked in with balaclava of course machine gun in his hand standing in the doorway behind him light in the hallway our room dark and he just looks huge in the doorway and he sort of moved his gun and I thought this is it I had all the terrible images in my head rapes killing blood kids screaming I was just like sort of had my eyes semi-closed, waiting for more men to come in, for them to start whatever whatever their intention was. And then he just said, move over, because there was a mother with two children sleeping on the stairs and it was really cold there, so he wanted some room for her in, in this room that was a bit warmer. We all shifted on the floor, whoever could, She walked in with the kids, they settled and the light was turned off. But I just really couldn't sleep for a long time. My heart was pounding in my ears and I just, yeah, it was frightening beyond understanding.
1: How many days did you spend sleeping in that house at night?
0: It was three days and two nights. Every morning they moved us from from the house to the car, so we sat in the car, and Elena would sit in my lap, she would play with the steering wheel and we didn't really, of course, you know didn't have much food left after the first day because I thought we would be in split that night, so I just packed a small amount of sandwiches, water juice. We ate that the first day, and then I just tried to be near my kids. I was just really afraid to leave them even even for a minute, so we just survived on a bit of bread and milk and water. Until they finally let us go on Thursday afternoon when it was already becoming dark and we continued towards the first bigger town, although it's actually a small town, Travnik, towards Split. And that was terrifying as well. I just didn't know how far that petrol will take us, whether I'll have to, in the middle of the evening, which was already dark, raining, I would need to stop somewhere, nowhere, pretty much. How would I find petrol? Nothing was open. No petrol stations were open on the way to traveling. But we somehow made it. Like, despite all my fear and my hands sort of, you know, holding the steering wheel, like, I don't know, like, that's, that. my life depends on it and probably did.
1: How did you know when you'd crossed the border into Croatia and you were going to be safe?
0: That night when we came to Travnik, there was already um, Croatian territory and people in Travnik helped us to spend the night. Uh, We spent the night there. And, I mean, for me, that was not a restful night. I just was scared of what happened and scared of what would happen. And then the following day we continued towards Split. That, that sort of distance that normally you could probably do in four or five hours um, before the war took the whole day. So we left in the morning and came to Split really late at night.
1: So once you were in Split, the city of Split in Croatia, were you able to talk with Goran on the phone and tell him you'd gotten through?
0: For a short time, yes. The lines, the phone lines with Sarajevo were still open for about a month, I think, after we came to Split. So that would have been, so we got there on 20th of um, May and... I think maybe another three or four weeks the lines were open and we could talk and my main worry was, of course, whether he was alive, whether he was in one piece.
1: Because there was a massacre in Sarajevo. The Serbian artillery fired into yeah. a crowded marketplace in Sarajevo. Yeah,
0: there was. So, you know, of course we couldn't be on the phone all the time. So you, you phone and then a couple of days you're okay and then I saw on a Croatian TV... Images from Sarajevo, from that massacre, and and you know, I I thought I I know that street. That's actually that where our first apartment that we rented was. It's it's like the center of the city. It's the very heart of the city. And as they were like scanning the people on the street, covered in blood, with no limbs, no legs, no no hands. I thought I saw our neighbor from. Orbeć, that's a little place in Croatia where my in-laws had the house and where we went often and knew all the neighbours. And I sort of screamed inside and ran to the phone and, and called Goran and called and called, but then he didn't pick up. And he, of course, like he he went to work and he wasn't there when I called. And then later on I found him and he said that he was fine, that he wasn't there, he was at work. But... You never know when the next grenade will explode, where and when and whether he was going to be near or not. It's just like, you know, I I would finish the conversation with him and only while I was talking to him I would feel okay.
1: He was trying to make efforts to get out with a people smuggler. Why was he finding it so hard to get a people smuggler to get him out?
0: Well, what Goran told me when I asked him, like, how come that other husbands are coming from Sarajevo and you can't, He said that the war rules were in place, that for a Serb man to leave Sarajevo, it was 100 Deutschmarks. That was the currency at the time in Bosnia. For a Croatian man, 200. For a Bosnian man, for a Muslim, 300. And for someone who is an eater, it's only a shot in the head.
1: A shot in the head.
0: Yeah. So he obviously didn't want to, couldn't go to either side, and that's what made his exit very difficult. No one really wanted to help him. You had to belong to a side.
1: So from there, from Split, you were offered a place in a UN convoy to go to England, and they settled you in Cumbria, in the Lakes District. In that's right. Penrith in Penrith uh, in Cumbria, as it's called. What kind of a welcome did you receive into that community in the Lakes District?
0: So first of all, we got there by bus, which... It's like two nights on the bus with a little baby. Uh-huh. Then we spent the first night in London in Red Cross, sleeping on the floor. And I thought, oh, gosh, mm, what's going to be at the end? At the end, we first spent two nights at a castle, real beautiful castle, Ogle Castle, which was in the process of being turned into a hotel. So half castle, half hotel. Amazing. Then we got to Penrith the the following Monday, I thank them immensely for everything that they've done for us. They literally saved our lives. They help, helped us to get our pieces together. So I am immensely grateful, but the, the fear of Goran's safety just sort of lingered above everything that was happening there all the time.
1: So as the news from Sarajevo kept getting worse and worse, what were you trying to do in England to get him brought over?
0: Well, I kind of tried all the time to find information from people I heard left, men who left Sarajevo, who did you contact, what did you have, no one really wanted to tell anything. So I tried to do anything I could, but I was hoping at the same time that Goran would find a way to leave from Sarajevo until I heard from a friend whose brother and and husband just came back that it was pretty much impossible to do that from Sarajevo. And that's when I started digging deeper. And I met this man through a friend, through an English woman that I met in Penrith, who somehow, I mean, lots of people who we talked to said, oh, I wish I could help, but just no one could. It's a siege. It's like being in prison. You can't do much about it unless you do something extra special but this man somehow managed to get in touch with people from Channel Four and then I talked to someone else and this guy was maybe a bit higher in the position and then they put together a letter that was faxed to UN a protection force in Sarajevo saying that Goran work for them but that they really didn't budge, if I can call it like that.
1: That's a pretty decent thing for Channel 4 to do, I must say, to pretend that Goran was a journalist and and send through that, that fax to the UN in Sarajevo.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I just couldn't really believe my eyes. But it wasn't enough. That's the thing. Like, that just wasn't enough. Then they organised someone from National Union of Journalists in London to issue him a Journalist International card, which looked like a passport, had Goran's name, photo, place of birth, Sarajevo, nationality Bosnian, domicile England. So he looked like he literally lived and worked in England. So we sent that to Sarajevo as well.
1: So once you smuggled that journalistic passport to Goran, what happened when he presented that to the UN in Sarajevo?
0: They still didn't buy it. They still didn't buy it. And, and I don't know, like, to, to, <laughs> to this moment, I wonder whether that's because he just really didn't look like a journalist. He is six foot something tall, and by then his weight was 57 kilos. Oh. So it was very obvious that he wasn't on journalists' <laughs> food. And, you know, and they all stayed in a holiday Inn hotel in the centre of town. And I think that lots of people from UN knew who was and who was not journalist, and they were just not buying the story. So guy this friend who started this this whole fetched story about turning Goran into an international journalist he kept calling them he kept calling UN, UN protection force in Sarajevo and telling them we're losing money and faxing them and you know offering to meet someone in Zagreb in Croatia for this and that to film them to include them in the program honestly like some of his faxes when i read them i Kind of thought that guy started believing the story. It was so convincing, <laughs> but nothing was happening. It just nothing was happening. Then somehow through a pen pal in, in the states, I managed to publish Goran's letter translated into English under his name and with his photo, and we sent that to Sarajevo as well as a proof that he's a he's a journalist. He's an international journalist. Goodness me, he has a letter published in the states. Mm, nothing was happening. Until one day my friend Anna, who was at the heart of all of that, picked up the phone and called The Guardian in London and asked to be put through to the war correspondence area and she spoke to someone and said, what do you need, if you are reporting from a war zone, what do you need to look like a real journalist? And they told her, a flak jacket.
1: (laughs) A flak jacket? Like...
0: (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> so, sorry, I, mean, a, I mean, I mean, yeah. like, you can
1: have all the you can have all the credentials you like. Yeah. But that doesn't work. Doesn't like make a, you a, a journalist. Doesn't make you a journalist. A flak jacket nah. makes you a yeah. journalist. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> so I don't know. So, a flak jacket. Where on earth were you going to get a flak jacket for? God. Well,
0: I had the same question in my head. I. I, you know, first of all, I like, didn't even know what flak jacket was, so I asked Anna. So what is that? Right. And she said, "Oh, it's like a bulletproof jacket that most journalists have." And I thought, "Ah, oh, okay, okay. Oh, I mean, I didn't really think that we could ever get it, but I thought, okay, let's just see, you know, how much it costs, and where do we can where can we get it, and, and how. And what does it
1: cost for a flak
0: jacket? Oh, I think it was six hundred or eight hundred pounds then. And you had nothing like that
1: kind of money. No, at the
0: time. No, 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 not at all. Like so, how political. did you get hold
1: of a flak jacket then?
0: I don't know, some sort of weird luck that I still honestly can't believe. So that was Friday when we were at Anna's place in her beautiful converted barn in outside of Penrith. And then she brought me back to our home in Penrith. And later that day, Steve, a very young man, he was actually on the bus to Split, um, came to see us quite often and he just popped in. And I told him about what Anna found out. And I said, flag jacket. Like, I I literally started crying. And I said, you know, three months of sending faxes, calling, spending so much money, because it was actually expensive to call Sarajevo from England every day, send faxes. These people who were doing that, they were not really wealthy. So I said, no results ever is going to be out of that. Um, And he said... Well, my uncle works for British police. He could possibly hire a flag jacket. And I, you know, just like didn't know what to say. First thing that came to my mind, it would never, it could never make it to Sarajevo. It could never make it out. I just didn't really want to say anything. And I probably just said, but, but, and he said, oh, don't worry about it. So he left and I thought, "Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, is really not something that can happen. Someone who's never met us would go that far to hire a flag jacket from British police. So I forgot about it, you know, dinner time, bed, following morning, I'm drinking coffee, doorbell, there's Steve with a flag jacket <laughs> in his hand. And I'm like, what? He said, well, I told you I could get it.
1: <laughs> so, oh, so then you smuggled that. You somehow smuggled that to Gora in Sarajevo. That was smuggled by, what, another journalist, I suppose. Another
0: journalist. I mean, he wasn't really a journalist, but sort of maybe did some sort of journalism work who just regularly went to Sarajevo and we were really lucky that he was just about to go and also very lucky that someone from that area worked in London and was travelling on Sunday night. So he took the flag jacket to this guy on Monday and and he left um, for Sarajevo on Tuesday. And unlike many other times when he was stopped and robbed of everything, he had, he made it to Sarajevo safely and he gave the flag jacket to Goran.
1: So now Goran has the flag jacket, he has mm. the media passport, mm. he has all the credentials he needs. What happened when he showed up at the UN and said, I'm a journalist, I have a flag jacket and I have this, these credentials? Did they accept that at last?
0: They did. They did, <laughs> yeah, pretty much the same. So he's been to the UN building numerous times, always looking like he's just going to work with his slim Samsonite Samsonite, briefcase which had just, you know, one change of clothes maybe or something like that so so that he wouldn't look suspicious on the streets.
1: So they believed him?
0: They did, yeah. Instantly, first time he showed up, they said, ah, okay, fine, we have a a UN uh, vehicle ready for you. And they drove into the airport and he then had to go through the last border that was kept by the UN and had to convince the guy at the UN that he was a journalist. And this guy as well was not buying it. Like, as I said, like, Goran looked so slim. His English was really poor. He just didn't look like a journalist, although he had everything to prove that he was. And then the guy asked him, do you have any money? And he took money from his wallet and by pure luck, British pounds were on top. So whether he believed, that he, he was a journalist who maybe was like stuck in Sarajevo for too long and therefore that's how he looks and maybe he you know he couldn't speak English because he was scared. Whatever. Anyway, he let him go and go went onto this weird cargo aeroplane with a few other people, like a few real journalists.
1: And where did the plane take him?
0: To Ancona in Italy. And he told me about it after his his stomach was so tight from being hungry for a year and a half, that he just couldn't have a sandwich and a beer in three hours train ride from Ancona to Split.
1: He just couldn't fit it in?
0: No, just couldn't, yeah. It's it's frightening what war and being hungry for such a long time can do to you. But anyway, he made it to Rome. That was the most important thing. Like, obviously, he just could not believe for who knows how long that he was out of Sarajevo, that he could just go and buy food.
1: So he was there in Italy for three months waiting Mm. to get a refugee visa so he could join you in England. And then once that was granted, tell me about the day you were reunited.
0: Well... Hmm. How do you feel about not seeing your partner for 600 days and then knowing that he would come? There, there was still a bit of fear that something could go wrong. Uh, but um, lots of people, lots of friends from Penrith offered to drive us to the station. Penrith is a small town, and the station was like about 1k from where we lived. And I just declined all the offers and I thought we would just walk. I really didn't want anyone to be there because you feel uncomfortable in such situation knowing that people are observing you and i didn't know whether i would cry whether i would faint whether i would what would happen i really didn't want any more witnesses to to that situation so we walked there it was already a bit misty and evening kind of dark we walked there the train was coming And it's dark, it's kind of misty at the gate and I couldn't see, very few people got off the train. The train was going to Glasgow and um, only stops there like for two, three minutes or something like that. And I couldn't see Goran coming off the train and I'm thinking, oh my God, what has happened? And then I see him far away, like coming down from the last coach and I probably whispered, oh, there he is. And Elena heard me and she started running Daddy like like he left two days ago. And of course in that dark and everything, she sort of fell into a puddle and started screaming, all black of the from the mud and everything, and we all came towards her and got and cleaned her face and Somehow I didn't faint, obviously, didn't even cry because I think my worry was then was she hurt and and is she she okay to calm Elena down? And, And I think that's what we all did. And somehow that turned from like a very highly charged situation into pretty much an ordinary one, just like looking after a little child who's unhappy and crying. So as many times during those 600 days that we were separated, she saved my sanity. With her being little.
1: (laughs) The old habits, the old parental habits just kicked in of being together and being a family together.
0: Absolutely, 100%. It's just like everything clicked in so beautifully that sometimes it was hard to believe that we were separated for such a long time.
1: And then at last you were able to get your medical examinations done and come to Australia as migrants and you settled in Melbourne. Did you feel safe there in Melbourne, being so far away from (sighs) Sarajevo? Mm.
0: Well, uh, such trauma stays in you forever. And and for many, many years I had all our documents ready in a briefcase in a safe place and made sure that we have clean clothes ready all the time and I knew where everything was.
1: Were you like just in case something went bad in Melbourne?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not joking, I'm not making that up. I knew exactly where in the, in the house where we lived at the time. First, we had the briefcase with the documents. And, and, you know, I would just go back to that and make sure that everything's there every little while, I don't know, once a month or something like that or maybe, maybe even more often. And I made sure that all our clothes are constantly clean and iron and ready if I need to pack up and leave. It's something beyond any reasonable sort of logic, of course, I couldn't leave Australia as I left Sarajevo. No one can leave Australia as I left Sarajevo. You sit in a car and you leave. But it's just something that stays in you for a long time. Not anymore. It's all fine. We, I don't know where all my documents are now and <laughs> we don't have all the clothes clean. But it took a long time to lose that habit.
1: See, I think that's the thing that a lot of migrants who came to Australia after the Second World War, after the Vietnam War, after however many conflicts have found sanctuary in Australia they know that most Australians don't understand what it's like to live with a packed suitcase in the hall.
0: Yeah, true, true, very true. Mm.
1: You you had grown up in Sarajevo not knowing how bad things could get or not suspecting how bad things could get. And now you live in a country that's just like that. Does that... Does that please you or madden you? Oh, it
0: pleases me. It pleases me, of course. But to be very, very honest, I am sometimes worried that you can't sit in a car and just leave if something happens. Um, uh, I love Australia and I love where we live. But as I said, the trauma stays in you and sometimes plays tricks with your mind. And if the situation looks like it's not ideal, you kind of start thinking about the possibilities—it's happening in Ukraine. So you know, you just don't know. And I don't really want to finish finish on a bad note. I feel safe here. I feel beautiful here, except that, as I said, like there is some sort of tiny little thing somewhere deep inside me that occasionally sort of moves and thinks, "What if?" But that's that's really not something that. Um, place with my daily life. We have beautiful lives here and, and the kids are now grown up and they're independent and they have beautiful jobs and helping this society and it's you, all beautiful.
1: You say that you now realise that the road you travelled out of Sarajevo was in some way necessary for you. How so?
0: Well, the bad thing happened and I couldn't really do much about what happened to us, like the war happened, the separation happened... But the experience that I gained in that process is extraordinary, starting from my ability now to write a book about that experience and, and maybe try to raise awareness of the importance of helping refugees. And the other thing that is equally important is the importance of love of our, in our lives. If Goran and I didn't have that love for each other, for our children, the story would be probably unfold differently and I know stories that unfolded differently and if all my friends that helped in Croatia and people who I met in England didn't have that beautiful love for others for refugees that they told me they were scared about who are these Bosnians what will they look like what will they behave like but they bravely opened their hearts and they helped us they helped me if it wasn't for the love, again, the story would, who knows, finish how. It's just a, a thing that, as, as Dalai Lama says, love is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And, and I know that we all know that, but we forget, we easily forget. We just, you know, do about our little lives and we forget that there are people who need help that's essential for them.
1: It's been lovely hearing your story, Edith. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me.
1: Editor Mokic's book is called Between, Before and After. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.